0: Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Salovey, and welcome to Yale Talk. As we near the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, we're seeing the devastating effects of this public health crisis around the world. Some of us have lost loved ones or are taking care of those who are sick. We also know friends and family members who are out of work or worried about supporting their families. As medical and public health experts work on the front lines to save lives, We must also turn to addressing other aspects of this pandemic that are threatening our way of life and our future. The unemployment rate in the United States is about 15%, and more than 33 million Americans have filed unemployment claims since mid-March. We're afraid to spend money. We're hoarding our financial resources, along with toilet paper and canned goods. We may have a fear of leaving our houses. And so even when businesses reopen, many of us may not want to eat in restaurants or to travel or to attend a live performance. And these are serious issues for our economy. To mitigate the economic damage and to recover as quickly as feasible, we need to make decisions based on empirical evidence and the guidance of experts. Today, I'm joined by three Yale experts for a discussion about the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Penny Goldberg, the Elihu Professor of Economics at Yale University, served as the chief economist of the World Bank Group between November 2018 and March 2020. Andrew Metrick, the Janet L. Yellen Professor of Finance and Management at the Yale School of Management and director of the Yale Program on Financial Stability, is with us. And Bob Schiller, Stolling Professor of Economics, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Science in 2013, joins us today. Penny, Bob, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time during this crisis to participate in YELL Talk. Penny, so so much of your work intersects with history and other areas of the social sciences and humanities. I'm particularly interested in your take on global economic response to the pandemic. During times of stress, people become insular when resources are limited. Maybe it's easier for people to become less caring about others. What are the risks and potential effects of countries adopting protectionist behaviors? And how will international trade and migration be affected by this pandemic?
1: Peter, I have a slightly more optimistic view of human behavior.
0: That's Uh, good to hear.
1: During stress and during crisis, I would say that, that stress brings out both the best and the worst, uh, in people and in, in countries as well. Uh, so we already saw some of the best uh, at the individual level. You already mentioned the healthcare workers who put their lives at risk. And we also saw the worst, uh, people trying to profiteer from, from the sale of masks. And, and the same applies to countries. I would say that in terms of the economic response, not the public health response, but the economic response, the the early response uh, back in March and early April uh, was actually what it should be. It was very swift. uh, It was massive. It was decisive. And it did what it it was supposed to do. And uh, here I'm thinking primarily of the United States and Europe, so uh, parts of the world where there is, uh, where countries have enough space to enact very aggressive policies. So in the United States, we passed the, the CARES Act, which is truly unprecedented, both in terms of its size and also the speed with which it was passed. And it was passed with bipartisan support, which is truly uh, unique these days. And in Europe, many countries uh, enacted similar policies, very aggressive policies, sending out the message, we are here for you, we are going to, to do whatever it takes, and we'll make sure that the economy recovers as soon as possible. At the global level, there are many countries, many developing countries that unfortunately do not have the space to enact equally aggressive policies. But there again, the global community helped at the beginning. So uh, many official debtors uh, agree, many official creditors, I'm sorry, agreed to a debt standstill back in April uh, that reassured the markets. The Fed in the United States provided liquidity uh, to international markets. So uh, I would say that at that time... What the economic actors did was uh, was to send out a message of solidarity and support, and the markets reacted positively. I think things are, have started to change recently. At the global level, we are starting to see uh, the worst, in the sense, and you already mentioned some of the problems. Uh, it, it's very tempting during a crisis to find a scapegoat and blame the crisis on the scapegoat. And in this case, it is uh, China. So we see renewed attacks of China. Of course, the, the tense relationship between the U.S. and China is nothing new, but now it's taking new dimensions. In some sense, what this crisis has done is to intensify and accelerate some trends that were put in motion before the crisis. And one of these trends was deglobalization. Uh, you know, that the backlash against globalization, the backlash against immigration. And we see these trends now being intensified. So there are new calls for closing the border, for stopping trade. There are attacks of global value chains. And uh, uh, most of these arguments uh, do not hold water and they do not do the fact justice. What's the danger? The danger is in the short run, this is going to Uh, impede recovery. In the long run, um, I think it's important to to resist this tendency, this urge to close the border and become protectionist and become isolationist. Here we can draw on the lessons from the Great Depression, where the United States enacted tariffs. Uh, It became protectionist in an effort to protect its own businesses and its own people. But in the end, there is agreement among economic historians that what this did is actually deepen the depression and slow down the recovery. Uh, economists agree that it's not the tariffs, it's not protectionists that led to the Great Depression, but they also agree that these that, that tariffs, this protection made the, the recovery much slower. And uh, uh, we, we, should, we, we should learn from that lesson and try not to repeat these mistakes. And again, drawing on the lessons from the Great Depression, there are also uh, historians who believe that what happened during that period, the the, the rise in protectionist sentiment, eventually led to a a political climate, to an international political climate that was conducive to World War II. And I'm not suggesting here that we're going to face uh, a world war (laughs) again, but tense relationship among countries uh, do not benefit anyone in any time. They are particularly... Uh, harmful at a period of, of uh, during a period of a
0: recession. Thank you, Penny. Let me turn to uh, Andrew for a minute. You are the director, uh, founder, really, of a program called the Yale Program on Financial Stability that has been running since 2013. It creates, disseminates, and preserves knowledge about financial crises. It was funded in the wake of the 2008-2009 crisis. And you know a lot about that 2008, 2009 crisis. How is the current global economic downturn different from that one? And are there lessons from 2008, 2009 that will help us recover from the current crisis?
2: Andrew? Thank you, that's, a, that's an excellent question. We don't have to do any real deep study of it to see that these are very different crises from an economic perspective, at least at the surface level, 2007, 2008, The crisis began in the financial sector, and it was actually fears of solvency in the financial sector that drove the panic phases of that crisis, and then a very weakened financial sector uh, that made it harder for us to recover. Here, obviously, the problem was different. We were going into the COVID-19 crisis pandemic with a very strong financial sector. And in fact, the hope is that the financial sector will remain strong enough to be able to aid in the recovery. Instead, the problem, of course, is, is, as Penny said, people really don't want to do a lot of the things that they did before. And economic activity has just been depressed for reasons that really can't be immediately solved by policy. So the the economic crisis part of it is starting from preferences, from people's desire and, and need to not be doing what they were doing before. Nevertheless, I think there are some pretty important lessons, and the first one is one that Penny mentioned in her talk, which is really impressive, which is in the earliest stages of this crisis, there was a really strong reaction from central banks around the world, uh, most notably from the Federal Reserve in the United States, that took tools out of our toolbox that had been discovered and built in 2007, 2008, and just applied them it was basically the same form. We we took out all these really powerful things. So it was a really different looking crisis. And yet the liquidity tools that were used by the Federal Reserve were extremely effective in the early stages of the crisis and, and managed to calm financial markets down from their initial concerns. To me, a lesson from that was the value of, really the value of studying history. We're always told that we fight the last war. And when we study what's gonna happen in the past, it won't tell us how to fight the next one. But in this particular case, it turned out that even though these are very different looking economic crises, the tools, at least at that first stage, were quite similar. So I would say that's the first the first lesson. The second one is that while this was very a very effective first stage of reaction on the part of central banks, I am concerned that if this recession lasts as long as many people fear, the banks and the financial system more broadly, which is very well capitalized right now, will cease to be well capitalized. That some of the burden of helping to rescue the economy, which is falling on the banks, will lead them to end up quite undercapitalized sometime around the, the end of 2020. And if that happens, I don't know whether we are prepared yet. So I would say I'm, I'm concerned that right now, were we to need to uh, uh, have more advanced technical emergency programs that we haven't yet really focused on it, And if, God forbid, we actually need capital for the banks, I just don't know whether the political will for it will exist. And I fear that this would be a, a, a very bad phase of the crisis if it happens. Of course, it'll probably happen at the worst possible time right around Election Day, just as the bad time happened in 2008 and also in the Great Depression in 1932. 33 so the the final lesson is very much just purely on the fiscal side which is in 2009 I think that we declared victory a little too early on the fiscal recovery and we paid the price for that over the subsequent really over the subsequent decade it, it was a long recovery uh, and it lasted quite some time and the job market got fantastic but growth and productivity growth stayed low for a very long time and I think Fear that the need for what will eventually be fiscal stimulus right now has been just really rescue, but will eventually be stimulus that we may really have fiscal spending fatigue by then. And we we're already seeing a little bit of this now in Washington as people say, well, let's wait and see. I don't think we really need to wait and see. I think we're really going to be in dire straits for quite some time economically. And we need to we need to stay aggressive. So I would say those would be my three main lessons so far.
0: Great. Thank you. Bob, let me ask you a question based on your book. Your current book is called Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. And I'm curious to hear your views. I'm sure everyone is about the current narratives underlying COVID-19 pandemic and the economic consequences of it. And then are there particular narratives that would be helpful in encouraging consumers and in general, encouraging economic recovery as we move forward?
3: Yeah, well, I wrote a book called Narrative Economics, but it's really uh, a research proposal, <laughs> not a final statement. We're getting better data, and we can start to observe more and more through digitized text of what people are saying. Uh, and I think it's a new world for, it will be a new world for macroeconomics. But I, I think some of the narratives that are really salient right now preceded the COVID-19 epidemic. And actually made it worse. I also emphasize in my book that narratives often go way back into history and they they're like viruses themselves. They reignite with new circumstances. So I go all the way back to 1916 when Professor William Graham Sumner, remember him? He was a remarkable man. He wrote an essay in 1916 with the title of it was The Forgotten Man. And it was how our, our system tends to be cliquish and it uh, ignores people who follow the rules and are decent citizens in favor of go-getters. That theme is still coming up. Among many people in this country, there is a fear of the deep state, of liberal bias. A, A mixture of these narratives then suddenly confronted the epidemic, and that epidemic has amplified them, and it left us in a difficult situation.
0: Bob, let me stay with you for just a minute. I know that you've written about the Great Depression, and the narrative of fear that surrounded the Great Depression, that you've been looking at uh, media coverage of the 1918 flu pandemic. What can we learn from uh, the narratives that surrounded those periods in history?
3: Yeah, I think the, the narrative space is a largely unrecorded and unknown to most economists because we didn't have uh ability to search text. We didn't have all of the different digital media that we now have. We, we couldn't see what's going on. It's like we only had things like GDP or uh, CPI. We couldn't see what was actually going on in people's minds, but we're getting there. So the 1918 pandemic was interesting uh, because it didn't produce an immediate stock market drop. I searched newspapers from around the influenza pandemic and you could see a huge surge in articles in October 1918. That's when it became clear we're in deep trouble with this epidemic, but what did the stock market do? It rose. Okay, it didn't cause any depression until 1920. And 1920-21 the, the was the they call it the post-war depression. They didn't see a connection to the pandemic because it was a you know a couple of years. Well, it was during the second wave of the pandemic. They thought it was separate. Most people, but I think there was a connection that the pandemic uh, augmented the nightmare of. World War one with a, an even bigger and more deadly pandemic. So we developed a depression. It only lasted 18 months, the depression of uh, 1920 21. Why did it go away? No, nobody knows. <laughs> uh, James Grant, in his book called The Forgotten Depression, thinks it had something to do with uh, labor intransigence, which softened. Uh, the narrative changed, and they started accepting pay cuts. Now, the Great Depression is another example, which I think is in some ways similar to today. When Roosevelt ran in '32 against Hoover, it was a very divisive moment. The country was polarized much as we are now. It was called the, some people call it the age of American communism. I think President Roosevelt had a nice touch. He started his fireside chats. He started a new patriotic narrative. You should spend money. You should not take all of the money out of the bank when we reopen the banks. Uh, And people followed what he said somewhat. But the narrative was too negative. There was too scary a narrative. People thought the Depression would go on forever, and they didn't want to spend money. And even even with the help that Roosevelt gave, which was so uh, well-tuned, he couldn't overcome that. And the Depression lasted for 10 years.
0: We're speaking a kind of a historical way with Bob and uh, Penny. You know that uh, historically uh, global economic disruption can highlight disparities. And uh, are there policies that developed and developing nations that are similar or different can enact to mitigate the economic damage, both for their own people, but also to create stability worldwide in the face of those disparities? Penny?
1: So the priority right now is to provide economic relief, uh, and that applies to all countries. As Andrew mentioned before, uh, there is a true worry that uh, there may be fiscal fatigue as, as the months go by. On the other hand, there are also some legitimate concerns about how much debt we want to take on. One thing to keep in mind that makes this crisis unique is that usually when we have an economic crisis, it's because there was some market failure, because there was a problem in the private sector. And then the government comes in, economic policymakers come in, and they try to provide relief or a stimulus package and remedy the the problem. Here, the economy was working well prior to the crisis, more or less. So the the nature of the problem, the, the roots of the problem are not economic. We encountered a biological problem, and in order to address it, we had to shut down the economy for good reasons, but nevertheless, we did shut down the economy. So what this means is that the expectations of people from the government, from policymakers, are different from what we experience in other crises. Here, there is a legitimate expectation from people and from businesses to receive support. So, as I said earlier, I think what this crisis has done in many ways, it has accelerated pre existing trends. And one of these trends was a trend towards technology adoption, uh, automation, using more robots in, in daily work, and so on. The slow decline of retail. So, um, this Trends have been accelerated in the current crisis, and they have long-run implications. We all expect some jobs to return to the economy once we open up again, but some other jobs are not going to, to return. So some people will remain unemployed, those who are most affected by technology. So in some sense, what this crisis has done is it has accelerated technology adoption, but it has also accelerated disruption. And so this creates enormous inequities across the the world. And it's more important than ever to try to provide support for those who are displaced. And support uh, means not just income support, it also means giving them a way to transition to new skills and to new jobs. We had to do that anyway, so this was coming, and we have been worried about about these developments for many years, but now it's been accelerated and we have to face it, to face this challenge very soon. Some of these trends, some of these developments are actually desirable. Uh, Adopting new technology is a good thing. Uh, Within Yale, we are now pursuing online teaching And this is not to say that online teaching is a substitute for personal interaction, but there are advantages to having online classes so we can make the best of it. And the fact is transitions tend to be painful and time intensive. Uh, Now we are forced to do it and we are doing it faster. And if we do it well, then we can all benefit in the future. Uh, So, Peter, you talked about other inequalities. This crisis has exposed more than ever the inequalities that exist within countries, but also across countries. And this is a public health crisis. So the biggest inequalities, not surprisingly, (laughs) appeared in the domain of health. And the most vulnerable turned out, not surprisingly, to be those in poor health. So what I find striking about what has happened in the last two to three months is as a society worldwide, we're willing to shut down the economy at a huge economic price to protect the vulnerable. And yet, in normal times, we are not willing to allocate resources to strengthening the healthcare systems. And this is particularly true in these countries, but it applies to other countries as well. So, uh, investing in people's health is something that we have to do in the long run. And, and more generally, I would say investing in human capital. By human capital, I mean both health and education. Uh, Education was another casualty, another collateral damage of this crisis. Schools closed, and those students who have access to the internet and to computers and have educated parents, they could partly make up for the lost classes. But that doesn't apply to students who live in settings where this was not possible. And that applies even to our own country, to the United States, but it's even more relevant to other countries in the world. So I would say that in the long run, one thing we need to to do all over the world is invest in people, invest in human capital. And ultimately, this is what is going to make countries more resilient. One more thought that I conveyed before, but I want to repeat and emphasize that worldwide, it's more important than ever to resist this tendency and this urge to turn inward, to close the borders and become isolationist. Uh, This has happened many times in the past, and it never served anyone well. So uh, in the current crisis, developing countries, especially low-income countries, Are already hit hard and they will need help, they will need a helping hand from the richer countries. What we are seeing right now is instead of lending a helping hand, we, richer countries, tend to do the opposite. They are closing the borders. This is going to affect immigration. This is going to affect trade, and trade and immigration are important in all countries, but they are particularly important to the low income countries. Having a stable world, a stable worldwide environment, is something that's in the interest of everyone not only the low income countries, but also in the interest of the United States and the more advanced economies.
0: Great. Thank you, Penny. Uh, Andrew, I'm just wondering if you can do a very quick summary of your four phase model for the economic consequences of the pandemic and how we get to recovery, which I assume is the last phase.
2: Yes, sure. So I think that it's important in looking at the government response on the economic side to the crisis to realize that there's a bunch of different goals and those goals will change depending on where we stand in in the crisis chronology. The first phase was a liquidity run. So we're going to have all four R's here. So liquidity run. And that happened early on. Lots of uncertainty. That was dealt with very well. That's the kind of emergency response that we saw from central banks. The second phase is a rescue Rescue and relief. This is for handling people and businesses that really are, were, were living hand-to-mouth to some degree. You know, one week's worth of payroll or one week's worth of buffer savings. And we needed to get money as quickly as possible into the hands of those people and businesses. And the rescue phase is still going on, but it shouldn't be confused. We shouldn't think of that as stimulus. It's been called fiscal stimulus But stimulus is really the wrong word, not trying to stimulate the economy, really just trying to to rescue people, to keep them afloat. The next stage, which we've already begun some form and there's a a hazy line between rescue and this next stage, is uh, uh, just the recession and the recession is going to last a long time. Generally, there's a lot of noise being made now about getting states and cities to reopen and the government to say reopen. I think that's a distraction. Uh, All the governors, all the mayors, the president, everybody could go on TV tomorrow and say, we're officially reopened. Everybody is reopened, go back about your lives. And even in that world, all the people I know who are my age and older are gonna be pretty careful and uh, not spending the kind of money that they usually spend. Travel and leisure will be way down. This is gonna happen no matter what. This is a response that people are making by choice. So I think the recession will last. Until we have a vaccine that's widely available or really, really effective treatment, and that will be by people's choice, Uh, government has some effect on this. But largely, I don't see us getting back to 2019 quarter four GDP until we are well past the stage where we have a widely available vaccine or great treatment or so many years has passed that we have herd immunity. So I think it's gonna be a while. And during the recession phase, this is where the government's gonna to need to be creative and we're gonna to need to worry about fiscal fatigue. The last phase, Peter, which we're all hoping to get to is recovery. That's when the traditional tools of fiscal and monetary stimulus, trying to get, get make sure companies can borrow. Uh, right now, they don't really wanna borrow, they just need to stay alive for another week. They're not thinking about making new investments or hiring lots of people. They will need that during recovery, which will happen after we have treatment slash vaccine. And we may indeed need more fiscal stimulus at that time. So we will still need dry powder. The recovery phase, this is my concern that I mentioned earlier, we will absolutely need a functioning financial system. You cannot have a recovery phase uh, without being able to pump money through the economy, through the banks. And my main concern, what I'm watching carefully over this time is the condition of the banking system because I don't want to end up like Europe in 2011 or like Japan in the 1990s, where a very weak banking system can lead to a lost decade of growth.
0: Great. Thank you, Andrew. That uh, framework, I think, is helpful to all of us trying to make sense out of the economy. At what level does the U.S. debt to GDP ratio become a problem? Will people stop putting their full faith and credit in U.S. Treasury obligations?
1: I would say I would not give a particular number. I think the United States is in a very strong position. It can afford to take on debt for some time to come. It's not infinite. There is a limit to to how much debt can rise. But right now, I think we can take much more debt than other countries without being concerned about the long-run prospects of this country.
0: What is your view? on how the current monetary policy will affect inflation. I'm happy to take a stab at that. Inflation is
2: one way that the markets tell us that we are defaulting on our debt. So the, the currency of the United States is one form of our debt. And overall, the Federal Reserve, to a first approximation, has no power to affect the overall amount of US government debt. So all they can do is change the composition of that debt from bonds, government bonds that are somewhat longer in duration, uh, to currency, which is kind of an immediate shorts, the very shortest end of the government uh, uh, debt yield curve. So overall, uh, the markets would tell us that we have a problem if you see either spreads going up on on longer term US government debt or some hint of inflation on the shorter term US government debt. Uh, We are nowhere near seeing hints of inflation. And I think that the overall, if you view inflation as a form of default, the two questions, the question er that Penny answered earlier about just how much debt can we have and the recent question about inflation are really the same question. Uh, When you look historically, countries that have hyperinflations have them because they have lost control of their fiscal side and they've responded simply by monetizing that it's still a default, uh, it's the same government debt, it's just that they've decided to monetize it instead of default on the longer term stuff. So I'm not worried I, I, right now, I'm not I'm not worried about the US defaulting on its debt. I think we have significant room. Uh, Penny is I think correct to not give a number, but we should remember Japan is at about 250% debt to GDP. Um, I'm not suggesting we go there, I'm just saying we have a lot of room before we get there. Uh, And I don't think we would see an inflation problem unless the market started telling us they didn't want as much of the short end of our curve as they currently do. So in summary, I'm not concerned right now. I think about it as one piece of the broader problem of how much debt we can have. And I think that we are still within the range where it makes sense for us to deal with this short term problem that we have that's very severe, even though it's taking a little bit of a long run risk. Uh, as you always are, at least a little bit, by taking on more debt.
1: Can I add one thing? Uh, I fully agree with everything Andrew said. I just want to add to that that we have, right now, we have about 15% unemployment. Uh, the pessimists predict that it will go up to 20 to 25%. Oil prices are at, at an all-time low. So I just don't see inflation as a concern, at least in the near future. With, with with such pressure on labor and wages, and oil prices that low, down the road one day we'll have to worry about it. Uh, we cannot take that uh, uh, forever. We cannot take on debt forever without facing the consequences, but this is not the right time to worry
0: about it. Let's address something unexpected from this pandemic. Because of how the world has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, including implementing social distancing measures, we've seen a significant reduction in carbon emissions. What does this say about approaches to addressing climate change?
2: Seems like a big think Bob Schiller kind of question to me.
0: Bob, you want to give a try at that? The pandemic has reduced carbon emissions quite a bit,
3: but it's only because many people are sheltering at home. They're not traveling and some manufacturing is shut down. This is not a sustainable solution to climate change. It shows how big the reductions must be, though, for all the world's shutdowns, uh, reduced carbon emissions, just about uh, in keeping with the goal of the 2015 Paris Climate Accord, and did that in a kind of extreme and disruptive way to our lives. As I've been saying, the the most uh, encouraging aspect of recent events after the coronavirus uh, The sense of community was growing, the sense of heroism, of uh, working people. It's an atmosphere of a world community at war with a a common enemy, the virus. Uh, I think that this leads us to a period when there's a possibility of our actually reaching a consensus on enlightened environmental policy and making the innovations to our institutions and laws and customs uh, As we've already done, I think, in this uh, uh, pandemic, we've already been learning how to do things differently. The spirit is here, and I'm hopeful that we will see progress on important environmental policy.
0: Penny, Bob, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to join me for Yale Talk as we wrap up the academic year. It's clear from our discussion that although medical research and public health interventions will end this pandemic, We will need the expertise of scholars from economics and psychology and history and many other fields to fully recover from this crisis. The challenges ahead are serious, but I'm encouraged by the scholarship and research of Yale faculty members and universities around the world. Our faculty, staff, students, and alumni are making substantial contributions to addressing all aspects of this pandemic. They're modeling what it means to rely on data, and on analysis to make decisions. Together, we can overcome whatever lies ahead and emerge stronger. To our friends and members of the Yale community, thank you for joining me for Yale Talk. Until our next conversation, best wishes and take care. The theme music, Butterflies and Bees, is composed by Yale professor of music and director of university bands, Thomas C. Duffy and is performed by the Yale Concert Band.